Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, Vincent Lamb, addiction medicine physician and Giller Prize winning author, joins me to talk about his latest book, On the Ravine. It is a work of fiction that draws very much on his very real experiences with treating addiction in Toronto and what needs to change in this country to properly tackle the opioid crisis. Automotive and travel writer Jay Kenna takes us on a road trip through the electric vehicle market in 2023. Are there more available? Are prices coming down? Are they more reliable? And what about the infrastructure needed to charge them? Is it improving? The final report from the inquiry into the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history was released today, and it is deeply critical of the RCMP's operational tactics, decision-making, and supervision during that horrific 13 hours in Nova Scotia in April of 2020. And it said the mass shooting shows the need for sweeping reforms within the RCMP to improve accountability, oversight, and training. We take a look at just how likely the Mounties are to make those changes. But first, the U.S. entered some uncharted legal waters late today as a Manhattan grand jury indicted former President Donald Trump over allegations of payments made during the 2016 election to adult film actor Stormy Daniels to cover up an extramarital affair. Hush money, so to speak. What is the case all about? How likely is a conviction? What happens now for Trump? And how could it impact his presidential ambitions in 2024? We find out. Let's, though, begin in the U.S., where the country entered uncharted legal waters late today. I mean, he had been talking about it for a while. Today it happened. After months behind closed doors, a Manhattan grand jury indicted former President Donald Trump over allegations of payments to adult film star uh, Stormy Daniels to cover up an alleged extramarital affair uh, during the 2016 election campaign. He is the first former U.S. president to face criminal charges, or current president for that matter. Here's how it was announced on Fox News late this afternoon, gasps and all. Here, uh, we have just gotten word former President Donald Trump has been indicted by a grand jury in New York. Trump was under investigation by the DA's office for his alleged hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 campaign. Yeah, you could hear the gasp there, couldn't you? I mean, this this broke this afternoon. A statement from said District Attorney Melvin Bragg reads this evening, we contacted Mr. Trump's attorney to coordinate his surrender to the Manhattan DA's office for arraignment on a Supreme Court indictment, which remains under seal. Guidance will be provided when the arraignment date is selected. Now, the precise charges aren't yet known. The New York Times is reporting tonight there could be as many as a dozen of them. Trump, of course, responded on his social media platform saying, quote, this is an attack on our country, the likes of which has never been seen before. A lawyer for Stormy Daniel writes, Stormy Daniels rather, uh, the indictment of Donald Trump is no cause for joy. Now let truth and justice prevail. Well, there is so much going on here, criminal and political. Trump, of course, has already announced he's seeking the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential campaign. Here to make sense of it all tonight is Derek Muller. He's a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. Derek, thank you. Iowa, rather, uh, not for- Ottawa. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I brought you back on the onto the other side of the border. Well, I mean, here we are, and it, it happened. Um, so legally speaking, for Canadians who may not know how a grand jury works, what was decided and how did they get there? Right, so the grand jury is an investigation to determine whether or not they can bring charges in the first place. That is, whether or not they can prosecute. So it's kind of a one-sided affair. Uh, the prosecutor is there, but the defendant is not. The prosecutor is presenting evidence to this jury to make the case and say, hey, 
it's all right for us to go ahead and arrest this person and bring the charges. So that's what the grand jury has been doing um, over the last uh, several weeks. Uh, the grand jury doesn't just handle this case. It handles a number of other cases at the same time, too. Um, and apparently they got the, the green light to uh, indict uh, former President Donald Trump. Wow. I mean, what happens now? I mean, I, I gather he's going to, like any, any other indictment, he's going to have to be arraigned and he's going to have to turn himself in. Is that what's going to happen? Yeah, so there are some reports saying that early next week he will turn himself in. They're working with the attorneys to figure out a way of doing that. Yeah, he'll be arraigned, um, so the charges will be formally presented to him. Um, you know, I think there, there's going to be perhaps some media circus if he's fingerprinted and given a mugshot and those kinds of things that happen. But, um, yeah, at that point, we'll have a clear idea of what the charges are. Um, you know, he'll have a chance to plead not guilty, um, and then the criminal process will begin to roll in New York. Right, because we don't know the charges, because the indictment is sealed until he's arraigned. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Right. I mean, he's in Florida right now. Um, is there any any chance that he wouldn't go back to New York? I mean, uh, presumably the arraignment has to be in New York, right? That's right, yeah. So there are um, extradition treaties. We have. It's not really a treaty in the United States, because uh, it's an agreement that the federal government enforces across all 50 states. Um, so there would be an obligation for Florida to send him uh, up if, if he refuses to go there. Um, but obviously, the one, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida has said he, he doesn't really want to do that. But another is, I think, um, you don't want the police to come in and arrest you. That's a different kind of visual. So I think he wants to comply with this. And again, I think he's been very clear. He thinks this is a witch hunt. He thinks he's innocent. Um, and if that's the case, he'll just go forward and sort of show that he's got nothing to hide and, and let the charges proceed. To sort of step away a bit from, I mean, this has unfolded, I would imagine, behind closed doors, just like any other indictment. But, you know, the person being indicted is the former president. This really does cross into some very strange legal territory. That's uh, Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we've had uh, former presidents or former vice presidents who have done, you know, questionable things or, or potential criminal activity. So, um, Richard Nixon, for instance, resigned because of the Watergate scandal, but, you know, was very was promptly pardoned after that for federal charges. And so there were really no investigation. Um, Spear Agnew, who is actually vice president or president Richard Nixon's vice president, um, you know, resigned from office because of some tax evasion charges and pled guilty to something. But he was a vice president. So, you know, we, we have some of these things that crop up occasionally. But, yeah, we certainly don't have anything like this and certainly not someone He's a former president who's then turning around and running for president when this happens. Yeah, I, I mean, you specialize in electoral law. I mean, what what could this do? I mean, we, we could face a situation where you have a presidential candidate under indictment. I, I don't know how fast this will all unfold, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think people are interested to say, well, well, does this mean he can't run for office or he's disqualified or something like that? And the answer is no. Um, there are very few qualifications to run for president, that you are a natural-born citizen, 35 years of age, that you've been a resident of the United States for 14 years, and, and, and that's about it. And uh, so he gets to run. Um, you know, in, uh, there have been imprisoned candidates who have run for office uh, before, right. uh, most famously Eugene Debs about 100 years ago, a socialist candidate who was incarcerated and got hundreds of thousands of votes. Um, but that's also, you know, a, a third party candidate or somebody who we don't think is necessarily going to win. Um, you know, we certainly are uncharted territory if, if somebody's facing criminal charges like this. 
Tell me a bit about what we know about this case. I mean, how solid, I know this is, would be speculation, but of all the things that have happened over many, many years in Donald Trump's career, this one seems like, like, a, like a strange one to be indicted on uh, or, to, or for the DA to pursue. So uh, I know that Michael Cohen is the star witness in, in this case. He is a, a former yeah. fixer for, for Donald Trump. So there are, there's already been a case here. Uh, but, but what do you make of, of, the, of the case itself? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think there's a pretty broad consensus. It, it's potentially a very weak one, um, and certainly everyone agrees that it's untested. So, so there's some questions about, um, you know, the prudence of it. Right? So on the one hand, uh, we have the campaign finance violation that Michael Cohen pled guilty to. Um, now, he pled to it, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean it actually happened, and certainly President Trump doesn't necessarily think that it happened. Um, but it says that essentially the payment was essentially a campaign finance violation. Um, that is, it was designed to, to hush up a, a, an adult film star before the election. But, um, you know, Donald Trump might say, listen, I just wanted this case to go away because it embarrassed me or embarrassed my wife, my kids, whatever it might be. Um, and there's precedent for that. In, in 2008, John Edwards, who was a presidential candidate, also tried to pay money to a mistress as sort of hush money and a campaign finance charge was brought against him and the government actually lost that one. He won and sort of made the case that it wasn't for that. Then on top of that, New York is saying, well, it's not just this campaign finance payment. It's that you intentionally, willfully concealed business records in the state of New York when you made this federal payment. So now there's this relationship between state and federal law, between New York law and federal law, which is it's unclear if that will work. And you have to show that he willfully did that, which is a very high state of mind to demonstrate. So there's a, there's a lot of potential complications in this case out of New York. Yeah, the New York Times was reporting late today that there are more than two dozen counts in this indictment, which seems like a lot. I mean, I, I, I've, covered, I've, covered, I've covered stuff in the U.S. I remember covering a trial of Conrad Black, a famous Canadian uh, newspaper guy, and, and was told by a prosecutor, listen, you know, we, we, we put a lot of charges in there because one of them is going to stick. So I'm wondering, two dozen, <laughs> that seems like a lot. Well, I mean, again, it, part of it depends on what you mean. Like, you know, if each filing that you make with the state may well right. be a count of fraud, right? So when we sometimes talk about wire fraud or tax fraud charges, sometimes those things can add up if you're looking at each of them as separate and individual acts. Um, so, yeah, we're just kind of speculating right now. That that does seem like a high number. I think you're right, but we're, we're going to yeah. wait until potentially next week and find out the details. We're swimming through some uncharted legal territory tonight. Uh, Derek Muller is with us, professor of law at the University of Iowa. We're talking about the indictment late today of Donald Trump by a Manhattan grand jury. Uh, he's to be indicted on charges related. We don't know the charges yet or how many there are, but related to allegations of hush money paid during the 2016 election campaign uh, to cover up an extramarital affair, an alleged one with uh, adult film star Stormy Daniels. And, and law, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to this case, but there are are other cases out there still as well this isn't the only legal trouble he's in at this point right so there are some investigations about his business dealings about his taxes whether or not they were he paid appropriate amounts of taxes or charitable contribution deductions so all that's been happening in new york on a different level and then in georgia the state of georgia there's some investigations about whether or not he improperly attempted to influence the outcome of the 2020 election that is there there's some pretty notorious recordings now in the months after the 2020 election where he, uh, you know, asked the secretary of state to find votes for him, uh, suggesting the election was rigged, suggesting that there's some way that that he should have been certified as the winner. And so that's also an ongoing investigation in Georgia. 
Uh, I mean, uh, Derek, I know you're I know you're a, a law professor and a lawyer, but I'll, I'll ask you to take your law hat off for two seconds. What's the <laughs> mood, what's the mood like? Because if you watch the different networks, I mean, everyone just went just blew up, right? What's the mood like right now? Uh, Canadians are curious, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, it's been a slow moving train wreck, if you will. I think people have anticipated this, and and I think there's some wide consensus. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting that this may be actually ironically helps him in the Republican presidential primary. Um, that is because people view him as a martyr, that this is a witch hunt. It's a it's a weak case uh, being brought against him for maybe something he didn't even do. But then on the flip side, of course, that maybe it, 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 while it might strengthen him in the primary, it might make him a very weak opponent for President Joe Biden because he's got, uh, you know, that the sort of swing voters, the independent, the, the middle of the country that is looking at this saying, do we really want someone who's facing these charges, these criminal investigations, these indictments, um, and elect this person? Uh, we already rejected him once in 2020. <laughs> Maybe it makes it more attractive to reject him again. Yeah, I noticed that the fundraising emails apparently were already going out tonight as well uh, from his campaign, uh, you know, sort of cashing in on all of this. But it is a very strange time in American politics. I mean, even this indictment from an outsider's point of view, from a Canadian point of view, uh, understanding some of the, you know, some of the elements of the case. I mean, no one's above the law, right? I think the New York Times has an editorial out tonight saying that he should face this like anybody else would face this. But wow, it's going to be a circus next week. Tuesday, apparently, is the day he's going to turn himself in. Yeah, I mean, so it's, that, there's that from the New York Times. The Washington Post has, a, has an editorial coming uh, the other way, saying if this is a weak and untested case, um, maybe it's not something you should bring. So it is right. this tension, right? No one is but the law. You, you want to investigate and do your best job. And again, uh, the, the grand jury, it's a very low standard for a jury to indict. But, you know, they went through the process and chose to indict. Um, on the flip side, we're going to wait and see what kind of evidence they really have and, and how tight the legal theory is that they've got. And as you mentioned uh, earlier, regardless of what happens here at all, he's still perfectly capable of winning the nomination and then running for president in 2024, regardless of what happens in this case. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, when the Constitution was created, ratified, the thought was there'd be very few qualifications put in place for presidential or congressional candidates. The notion being um, it was really left to the people. There would be a a few minimal qualifications. And again, this is actually a case where maybe it's a good thing, right? The notion that one state could indict you and therefore disqualify you from running for president uh, might be a little absurd. Um, So we, we do have those minimal safeguards. But again, it's a usually we would think that being indicted or potentially convicted of a criminal offense is sort of inherently disqualifying um, and not a, a boost to your fundraising, as you pointed out, right? So it's a, again, we are in uncharted territory as we think about what this, what this means for the campaign in the year ahead. So what will you be looking for then uh, over the weekend into early next week? I guess they'll be preparing uh, security-wise in New York, uh, but what, yeah. what will you be keeping your eye on over the next uh, 96 hours or so? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm thinking about this legal theory, and again, the relationship between uh, a New York statute that says a violation of federal campaign finance law uh, is enough. So you're sort of bootstrapping a, a state law onto a federal law, and, and the more details we get about that, about um, what sort of evidence they have of Trump's state of mind ahead of 2016, you know, whether or not he sort of is worried about this as a campaign issue as opposed to a personal issue, not he's aware that this is happening or he's just paying money to his attorney. And then, you know, whether or not there's even a legal hook here, you know, I'm going to be waiting to see how these sort of legal 
um, components all play out because because the politics, uh, you know, we have a very long way till November of 2024. It will be a roller coaster between now and then. Um, but but I'm looking in the short term to see the strength of the legal theories. Yeah, well, we're, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of ink spilled over this one. Derek Muller, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Something really important happened on this side of the border today, and that was the much-anticipated final report from the public inquiry into the worst mass shooting in our country's history. It was released this morning. It pulls few punches. The three-member commission's 3,000-page document was highly critical of the RCMP's operational tactics, decision-making, and supervision, and said the mass shooting shows the need for sweeping reforms within the force to improve accountability, oversight, and training, as well as tougher gun restrictions and a national standard for public alerts. It found that the Mounties failed to notice years of warning signs from the killer. You'll remember it was nearly three years ago, three years ago next month, that a 51-year-old dressed in an RCMP uniform, driving a replica RCMP vehicle, shot and killed 22 people over a 13-hour period, a horrific period, before he was killed by police. It's been a very difficult time, of course, this whole process for the families. But Scott McLeod, the brother of victim Sean McLeod, hopes the report will do some good. If we can get the positive side of this and move things forward, it will, you know, you know that these people didn't lose their lives for nothing. It's, it's going to, if it makes a positive change that's nationwide, it will be, it'll be appreciated, I know, by families. Well, joining me now is Sandra McCulloch. She's a litigation lawyer with Patterson Law, the firm representing several of the families of the 22 victims as well as survivors. Uh, Sandra, thank you for your time. Thank you. Good evening. This was much anticipated. It is a long report. Uh, There are a lot of recommendations, but uh, perhaps just the highlights for you. What did you see what you were hoping to see from this? Was the tone right today? I think that it would be fair to say across the board that our clients um, and, and us as well are pleasantly surprised um, by the report and the tone of the report in general. You know, certainly there are some areas that we need to dig into some some particular points that uh, don't necessarily agree with our clients. But generally speaking, I think they were very pleased that the commission went directly at the concerns with respect to the RCMP's response to the mass casualty event a lot of the things that are identified as deficiencies really line up with what our clients have been saying all along. So in in that respect, we're pleased to see that that sort of content is in there as as intensely as it is. Some of the things going in that were clearly areas that uh, the families of the victims wanted to see was an acknowledgement that many warning signs had been missed before this all began, that the response during those 13 hours was inadequate and disorganized, and that people could have been warned and lives could have been saved, perhaps. And also just the, the after the fact that there were deficiencies too, there as well. If you look at how the commission addressed all three of those matters, what were the highlights of those three and what, what were what came out of the of the report that was uh, satisfactory? to the families. The communication piece, first and foremost, I think it's it's really important that the commission hit that as hard as it did. The communication was was woefully inadequate during the mass casualty event, and it's it's good to see that the commission agrees with that. 
and uh, to the extent that there are strong recommendations to take advantage of the tools that were available and should have been used, and and not only the tools but also the the language that it is important that the the actual message, the real message that enables the public to make sound decisions about what is the risk and what do I need to do to provide for my own safety. There's very clear messaging in that area. There's some really helpful stuff in there as well about the aftermath in respect of how victims were were treated after the mass casualty event. And by victims, I mean both the families and the and survivors as well, in terms of making sure that there is an avenue for them to receive information, that they are treated with appropriate care and attention, and that a much more planned and prepared process is in place ahead of these sorts of things so that similar to how the RCB conducted themselves during the mass casualty, that there isn't constant catching up and trying to, you know, figure out what to do with something once it comes up, but let's get ahead of it and make sure that we are ready for how we uh, address these sorts of concerns in a meaningful way. Yeah, they certainly pointed out a lot of gaps that you would hope not to see, that, that the force had, had really had no training. In fact, they weren't capable of dealing with, with a situation such as this one. I mean, as unique as this one was for this country, they weren't capable of dealing with something like it even. Right. And, and I think that, you know, yes, this event, when you look at it from a, you know, from a up in the sky kind of perspective, yes, this event is unique and extraordinary, but all of the pieces that went into it, the, all of the little bits that went wrong, none of those things were particularly novel. Most of those things, communication, canvassing the community, you know, making evacuation plan, all of these things are part of regular day-to-day exercises. Um, and so to, you know, we've, we've advocated all along that this can't be washed away as extraordinary event. It has to be acknowledged that all of these pieces that we, we tried to execute, we didn't do it right. One of the big focuses of the commission too was to look into the warning signs that were missed leading up to that day. And uh, I, gather, I gather that was dealt with quite handedly as well in this report. Yeah, I would agree with that. They, they certainly identified that there were key moments in time that there were opportunities to to get a sense of who the perpetrator was and, and what he may have been capable of. And those opportunities were, were simply missed. Um, and the, the commission certainly didn't excuse that and helpfully has identified some ways to correct both legislative ideas and also correct cultural and systemic ideas about how we deal with things like a call from uh, about domestic violence, for example, um, that these things can be dealt with more intentionally, deliberately and more thoroughly so that these sorts of things aren't overlooked again. Sandra, when you look at the recommendations, and there are many, and they are very, some of them are very broad, um, but they are, they are asking for a real culture change at the RCMP. How has the family reacted to those? Because I know there would have been a lot of eyes on those recommendations to see just how far they went. I think it's that those sorts of recommendations are being met um, with a bit of twofold. Number one, that is the sort of thing they absolutely need to hear. I think everybody except the RCMP has acknowledged that there are significant changes that need to happen internally. I think 
in fairness to our clients and probably to a lot of people, there's some skepticism about, you know, how faithfully those recommendations are really going to be read and how meaningfully those changes, more internal cultural environment type changes, whether and how they're going to be made. But one thing that I have uh, thought about is that there, there does seem to be some pieces in in the recommendations that that may assist with that a little bit. For example, one of the um, one of the recommendations refers to the creation of a duty of care in respect of dealing with victims in the aftermath of a, a crisis or an event like this, um, which essentially would impose a legal responsibility to meet a standard of care. And and I think that's very interesting because it you know whatever the RCMP may or may not do internally, there's this external pressure that's now going to be on them if this is a recommendation that comes to fruition. Yeah. I mean, you know, two and a half years of this inquiry, nearly we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of, of the of the mass shooting itself. Um, you've been involved with this for a while. What what now? What now for the families? What needs to be done now so that this just doesn't, doesn't become, you know, often after the inquiries out, people sort of stop talking about things. What do we need to do to make sure that the lives lost that day aren't, weren't lost in vain? Yeah, well, I think you, you've already said it is we, we shouldn't stop talking about it. Um, you know, our, our clients are to be commended in their valiant efforts to to keep uh, remember our, the, the lives that we've lost and remember the, the sense of community and public safety that we've lost. We now have some tools that we can work with to encourage our community stakeholders, to encourage our governments to to really meaningfully look at what went wrong and what we need to do to improve it, making sure that we all make a concerted effort to to keep our eyes on where we are and what we need to do to move forward is is going to be a goal of everybody concerned. Well, Sandra McCulloch, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to walk through that with us tonight. Thank you. I have not gone through the review just yet and all the recommendations, but I am committed to go through all single recommendations. We have a team in place for the RCMP to look at every single recommendations, work with our clients and the stakeholders to make sure that we can put together a proper tracking mechanism. Interim RCMP Commissioner Mike Duhem today responding to the release of the report from the public inquiry into the worst mass shooting in Canadian history released in Nova Scotia today. It calls for sweeping reforms within the RCMP to improve accountability, oversight and training. The three-member commission found the Mounties failed to notice years of warning signs about the killer who shot 22 people, including an RCMP officer back on in April of 2020. Commissioner Leanne Finch says policing is long overdue for change. Significant changes are needed to address various community safety and well-being needs in the 21st century. To do so, the existing culture of policing must change. To ensure greater transparency and public accountability, we have recommended a range of measures. Well, joining me now is Scott Blanford. He's an assistant professor and program coordinator for policing and public safety programs at Wilfrid Laurier University. Scott, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What did you make? I mean, we knew it was going to be hard on the RCMP uh, and the recommendations were going to make some, we're going to ask for some quite lofty things. Uh, What did you make of the report and what it's suggesting? It is very detailed and quite wide reaching. It's very comprehensive. It's uh, several volumes of several thousand pages. Uh, But I kind of, when you have had a chance to go through the executive summary and and the recommendations, and I'm still working my way through it, uh, as one of the other commenters said, noted, it's a very comprehensive document. 
But there were a couple things that jumped out to me, and those were based upon my experiences. In addition to my current position as a mm-hmm. professor for policing, I'm a 30-year police veteran and right. a former tactical officer. So I looked at a, a lot of it from the tactical perspective of how the actual on-ground happened. And the things that jumped out at me in reading the the uh, overview of it and then the recommendations that matched up was the lack of prior planning, the lack of having right. the operational plan that could be implemented and scalable. I mean, this was a massive uh, investigation and ongoing live dynamic incident, uh, much beyond the scope of what those officers would regularly face. But there was no plan that was scalable to allow for a coordinated response to it. So the lack of a plan means that things are happening very fluidly on the ground uh, with the officers attending. And that was compounded by what I saw very disturbingly was a complete lack of communication and command and control at the supervisor level and on up into the senior management level. Yeah, they seemed, unfortunately, I mean, the officers on the ground seemed unprepared and ill-equipped, too. They didn't have, I mean, there were certain things they were supposed to be able to rely on, like GPS coordinates that weren't working or had never been installed. The alerts weren't working. I mean, it exposed a, a real lack of, of, call it crisis planning, if, if for lack of a better word. Exactly. I, I noted that one of the officers was using his personal cell phone for GPS for uh, mapping of Porta Peak. And I, I checked that I'd, I'd never been there before, but that's a very small town. It's only about a population of 250 people. And so to my mind, when I look at it from a tactical perspective, I'm thinking of inner perimeters, outer perimeters. And then because it's a fluid situation, you have a mobile perimeter that has to be set up. And it just seemed like it was not coordinated to allow for that. My kudos go to the initial officers on the ground that uh, formed the IRD team, the immediate action uh, response to start going uh, basically door to door and, and making a search for it. But there wasn't that higher level. In, in tactical work, you have the on ground team leader, then you have a tactical commander working out of a talk at the tactical operations center, and then you have an incident commander that's working out of a command center. And those three have to work in a very coordinated manner with the sharing of information back and forth, and that was absent. So when you have a lack of communication, you have gaps, and as a result, there's a lot of assumptions made. And one of the assumptions was that the suspect was still in Puerto Peak when, in fact, he had left. He had left, right. One of the things that really stood out to me was this idea that the 26, the whole depot model uh, that, that we all know, if you've ever spent, spoken to someone who serves in the RCMP, they all do their time at depot, that 26-week model of training in Regina, that it no longer meets the complex demands of policing. And they should go to something more like in Finland, where there's a three-year degree-based model of education. Now, you're, you've been both an officer and a professor or a teacher. Uh, what do you think of that? That's actually something I've been researching for a number of years, and and I'm a big advocate of the move towards uh, the professionalization of policing, which includes a university degree along with the experiential component from training. I'm a big advocate for that. Uh, I've studied the English model. I've studied the Finnish model. I was actually interviewed about the Finnish model a while back, and I think that's a, a move that has to happen. Canadians across the country should have an expectation that an officer in, in Porta Peak responds this we'll call the same way that an officer in Vancouver would, and that requires a national standard. And right now we don't have that. Each province has their own standards, and that's because of the separation in Sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act, which gives the provinces authority over their policing. So there's not a, a, a national model for policing like there is in Finland or in England, and I've been an advocate for a college of policing, whether it's 
to standardize the training for officers and setting the standards or actually delivering the training. But I think there has to be something at the national level that drives competency-based policing that can be uh, you know, properly assessed with proper performance standards in place. Uh, and just in terms of the RCMP itself, I mean, one of the things that's so glaring in the report, if you read uh, parts of it, are that it says, well, you should have done this in, when the last re- last inquiry yeah. recommended it. There's a lot of that in the report. And, and you get the impression that the RCMP has been very effective at ignoring these reports in the past. Do you think the time has come now that this is one they will not be able to ignore? I, I think they've reached the point of critical mass where they, they have to make changes. Uh, I, I remember the reports that came out of the uh, the shootings a number of years ago of, of several officers in Mayerthorpe, where there right. was a, the information came out about uh, rearming of the police with carbines and, and such, and it was never undertaken. It's just ignored. And I think at this point, if you don't learn from the lessons of the past, you're, you're doomed to repeat them, and that, that's come to fruition in this case. So I think there's enough impetus there from the public and also the political will now to make some changes. And, and leadership, too. I mean, clearly there was a lot of fig- figures pointed at leadership in all this, too. It feels like there was a real politicization to some extent of the RCMP, not that it always has it, it hasn't always been such, but there was certainly some attention paid here to the idea that um, that we need to get the politics out of the policing as well. Yeah, it, it's because it's such a large organization. What happens is it becomes fragmented. And it's what I refer to as uh, fiefdoms and kingdoms, where people have their own areas of responsibility. And when they're challenged from outside, they become very defensive of their areas. And as a result, there's not that level of cooperation. That's one of the things we really stress in our programs is that interoperability component, not just within policing, but across all of the public safety disciplines. And that's another piece that came out of this was a coordination with other uh, emergency services and first responders. And it's a case of where there just has to be this coordinated effort and shared communication that uh, allows these types of incidents to to properly unfold with a proper command and control structure. Well, Scott Blanford, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to shift gears this half hour, quite literally. Uh, we're going to talk about EVs or zero emission vehicles. Uh, registrations hit a, a real milestone in Canada in uh, the fourth quarter of 2022, double-digit market share. Uh, that was according to the last quarterly Canadian automotive report from S&P Global Mobility. Battery electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles accounted for 10.2% of all new vehicle registrations in the final three months of last year. And 8.9% over 2022 as a whole. Of course, Canada has some pretty ambitious targets for EVs nationwide. Um, Canada has, again, what is it, 20% by 2026, 60 by 2030, and 100% by 2035. But there are many barriers to those numbers. Those are very ambitious numbers. Uh, Daniel Breton of Electric Mobility Canada addressed a few of them back in December. We have to make sure that Canadians have much easier access to EVs without having to wait anywhere between three months to three years. Yeah, three months to three years. I mean, you know, at the height of the pandemic and even of late, it's been really hard to come by EVs. People wait for months. My dad's neighbor, I think, had to wait six and a half months for the one that he ordered. Then when he finally got it, it uh, there was some, you know, a minus 40 day in Montreal and he couldn't, it wouldn't start. Anyway, we'll talk about all of this. But again, you know, in 2023, car companies are obviously reading the tea leaves here, ramping up EV production to meet that pent up demand and also to help meet all those regulatory targets. They can see what's coming. Uh, Jay Kenna is an automotive and travel writer, photographer and videographer. And he joins us now. Jay, thanks. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Ben. I've got to say, I love the pun right off the top. 
my kind uh, of guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna annoy a few people tonight. Uh, it's been a, yeah. I mean, EVs. We talk about them a lot. I mean, it feels like it's coming coming at us fast in a lot of ways. But what's the market been out there? Has it improved at all? I mean, people were waiting for ages. There was nothing on the lots. Uh, the supply chain issues were out of control. How's it looking so far this year? It's getting a little better. Uh, more cars, as far as new ones, are being available, or be, sorry, being made available, and used car market is slowly starting to cool off. And by no means are we done with the pandemic. It's just not as severe as it was. And it's hard when a multi-trillion-dollar global industry tries to play catch-up after nearly two years on the sidelines. So you know, slowly but surely, and, and like that, um, that little sound clip. You know, some people are waiting three months. Uh, three years is a little much. You know, I don't think the longest one I've heard of is like 11 months, but very, very unique product. But we're, we're getting there and we're getting better. Yeah, I, and I, I've noticed as well that a, everyone is kind of piling into that space now. And, 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 you know, you're on the front lines of this. What are we seeing this year in terms of who's making new cars and how quickly are they able to get them and how are they? I mean, that's a lot of questions all at once. Who's, what's, the market look like? <laughs> what's the market look like so far? Is it really getting as crowded as it seems? It is. Um, and part of it's the mandate to go parcel, then more parcel and fully electric in the next 12 years. And 12 years is, you know, it goes by a lot quicker than people think. Because um, you know, it takes years and billions of dollars for manufacturers to create, design, engineer, test and release a vehicle. So it's uh, it's, it's coming, it's fast, it's furious. And some um, some manufacturers are just tweaking what they have. So, for example, Kia has this great electric vehicle called the EV6. It does everything you need it to. It looks uh, kind of futuristic, but they went out and threw 506 horsepower in it, called it a GT, and that's, you know, a quote-unquote new EV, even though it's not a new EV, but it's just, it's easier than going from the ground up as opposed to tweaking what you have. So that's one example. Um, uh, Kia again <laughs> released uh, a new EV9. It's going to come out in about a year, a year and a half from now. But the EVs are coming, and whether we like them or not. How are they in terms of of price point? Because I think everyone who doesn't has never bought one thinks about Teslas, right? I mean, that's sort of the first brand that comes to mind. Although you, I mean, I see a lot of them out here on the West Coast, but uh, you don't see them everywhere. But they they drop their prices in order to try to compete a bit more. Uh, but what is what has it been like in terms of price point? Now are they coming down at all? Or are they still because of, of you know interest rates and components and batteries and all the things that go into an EV? Are the prices still really high? They're still really high, and it's going to be, I think, two to three years before we see a reasonable dip. And, you know, back when we were kids, a CD player was, you know, four or $500, and now we can both stroll into Walmart and, and grab two for, for 40 bucks. We're not quite at the, uh, you know, that scale point yet, but we'll get there, and it's still expensive to, to get the batteries, and it's almost, you know, half the price of the car in some cases. So I think that big barrier to entry is part of it being cost, uh, long-term reliability. We just don't know what it is because EVs are still in their infancy. 
Yeah. I mean, I've been reading a lot recently. There was an interesting article out of China recently because one of the reasons that Tesla dropped their prices first in China was to try to compete with another company called BYD who've, uh, who've done very well. In China, they're actually – Chinese uh, EVs are outselling now foreign EVs. And I'm wondering whether we're going to see – I mean, you know, political tensions aside, whether or not they're also making a move in this territory. We may see their cars eventually. I think wherever there is money and willingness to spend it, on the consumer side, uh, that'll be done. And if it doesn't matter where in the world it is, you know, it just happens to be China right now. But you know, who knows? Like a Brazil could come out with an EV that's ultra affordable. And I think right now the only real affordable EV is the Chevrolet Bolt. It's just a little less right. than fifty thousand, and they just can't make them. So they they stop making them because they couldn't put them together fast enough. So. Everything else is in the 50 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus, and then you get into the luxury ones that are easily six figures for the most part. Yeah, that was that was uh, I, I, that was a surprise because I, I know quite a few people who bought the Chevys and they they were popular, right? You see quite a few of them bopping mm-hmm. around in, in this part of the world, and uh, I was surprised. So, so that's what happened. They just couldn't couldn't justify making them, even though they were selling a lot of them. Yeah, just they couldn't make them fast enough. And then, you know, when the pandemic hit and everything's pretty much ground to a halt. And slowly but surely, we were, we're making our way back to some level of normalcy as far as production and manufacturing goes on the car side. You know, the federal budget was out this week. There was lots of, uh, there was lots of, I mean, there were no real, I didn't see any real incentives for electric vehicles per se, but there was certainly I, built into all those sort of investments in clean energy. There was lots of uh, talk of electrification, at least spreading, try, I guess, building the infrastructure to try to get charging stations in place. How's that, how's that situation right now? Is it still as uh, sporadic as it's always been? It's terrible, Ben. It's yeah, just I did thought so. Bad. And it's, it's not a matter of people not trying. I believe they are, but you know, it's not as easy as a gas station where you dig some holes, get some tanks, fill the tanks, off you go. These are, you know, we've got to go onto the grid and get the full safety side of things going. And it's not just building them. It's, it's making sure they work. So I'm still a little hesitant to do any kind of longer road trip and depend on public charging. Because sure, the stations might be there, but they're not maintained, they're broken, they're out of order, and no one knows when they're going to be fixed or if they're going to be fixed. So not quite willing to throw so many question marks up on a road trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's that been, I mean, therein lies the rub, right? I mean, here we are because of the pandemic. We had supply chain issues that got in the way of these ambitious targets. Uh, there's a huge infrastructure that needs to be built to accommodate them. Uh, car companies can't make them fast enough. Uh, it's interesting to look at the targets and think, well, how are we going to get there given, given what the lay of the land looks like in 2023? Because we are only uh, 12 years away, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be optimistic. <laughs> um, you know, luckily places like British Columbia and Quebec actually believe in EVs since you guys have the terrific rebates and the majority of EVs in the country are sold in these two provinces. And um, I think Ontario would be right up there. I think Ontario, just based off physical volume alone of people, would be Canada's largest EV consumer, but we don't have any rebates. And, you know, when you miss it on $15,000, that goes a long way. That's, you know, in some yeah. cases, one third of the price of the car. Yeah, I, I'm wondering now that there's this sort of, you know, Volkswagens coming in with their with their battery plant and so on, whether if uh, the province starts to invest more in the components of these cars, there'll be more incentive to try to sell them to people as well. I, I hope so. I, I genuinely do. And for what EVs are, 
they can be remarkable vehicles. You know, if you do you know, under 500 kilometers a week, you don't need to charge more than once a week. And it's just like filling up a gas tank, but your gas tank is in your garage through a level two charger. And sometimes you got to go out into the public world, but I want things to be good on the EV side. There are a lot of cool things, a lot of great technology, but just the implementation and, and just the infrastructure around it, it just sucks. <laughs> Simply yeah, yeah. bad. And, and it's been bad for yeah. a couple of years, so... Automotive and travel writer Jay Kenna is with us this half hour. We're talking about electric vehicles in 2023. Of course, we hear a lot about them because the government, uh, the federal government, has uh, set some pretty ambitious targets for um, the coming 12 years. 100% of all new car sales by 2035 are meant to be electric vehicles. We'll see if we can get there. It's been slow going uh, so far, and we've talked about why that is. Uh, Jay, what about the reliability? I was saying, you know, my my dad, he, you know, he's in his in his 70s. He's a car guy. He loves his, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's a Ford guy. And so he's like, oh, yeah, the neighbors, you know, the neighbors bought this EV and they waited five months for it. And sure enough, on the coldest day of the year, the thing conked out and, you know, that's an EV for you. <laughs> so that's his line. That's, that's what I got. Um, how are they doing? Are they, are they getting more reliable for cold weather places like Quebec and Alberta and elsewhere? It's hard to say because we're so new into the EV world. Um, now, I was in Quebec City in February uh, and part of the assignment I was on was what's an EV like to drive in the cold and, you know, Quebec City in the middle of winter, it's yeah. pretty frigid. Um, all the EVs I've driven, including that one uh, by Genesis in Quebec, have fared well. Yes, your range takes a massive hit because nobody drives in a car in minus 20 with no heated seat, heated steering wheel or the heat on itself. So, you know, that eats up anywhere from 15 to 25% of the range, but... In all the years I've been doing this and, you know, the dozens and dozens of EVs I've tested in the winter, they've been fine. The little asterisks there is they've all been new cars with less than 10,000 kilometers on it. So that's the only thing I can speak to. Um, I know Hyundai's in the Arctic right now with a new EV doing minus 30 testing and doing some teaser shots and just, you know, their EV covered in snow and ice and all that. Results will come in a couple of weeks. And Nissan's EV, uh, the Aria, is doing a pole-to-pole, pole, you know, north to south, um, in the same vehicle to see how it fares. And I think they're doing okay. I don't think any manufacturer would release a vehicle that isn't suited for the Canadian climate. Um, you know, I don't know how well it's going to fare in the northest corner of Canada. Um, but, you know, where the majority of people are that have charging stations and that want an EV, I, from what I've heard, they're they're doing well. I haven't heard any horror stories. Um, do you know what kind of EV your uh, your dad's neighbor picked up? Yeah, I'll have to ask because I forgot to ask exactly what it is that he bought. I think it was a Hyundai, but I'll have to ask. I'll, I'll follow mm-hmm. up with you next time we chat. We'll chat again. Uh, a listener yeah. wants to know what what about uh, hydrogen fuel cell cars like the new Toyota, is it the Toyota Mirai, right? Is that uh, how are those faring? Uh, <laughs> what a lovely question. Um, and I'll tell you why it's a lovely question. I spent a few days uh, in Germany last month testing right. out BMW's new um, hydrogen vehicle. And it runs just like a regular EV, but hydrogen instead of plugging it in. And it's not in Canada because, well, there's nowhere to, sorry, that's not true that there's nowhere to charge it. Out of the four charging stations, sorry, refueling stations, three are in BC and one is in Mississauga. Oh. So it's nearly impossible to refill or refuel 
a hydrogen vehicle in Canada. So that's why there's none here. Yes, the Mirai is you know on Toyota's website, but unless you have a station at home, which you shouldn't, <laughs> that's the only way to do it. Right. Okay. That explains it. Yeah. And, and in, just in terms of how they, and you found it to be a perfectly decent vehicle, because that also seems to be one of those potential cars of the future as well. But we have these competing technologies, right? Now, interestingly, and I wrote an article for Driving.ca, and I don't think anybody read the one line I wanted them to. There was a roundtable <laughs> with the president. <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, was, I was at a roundtable with the president of BMW Global. And somebody asked, why are you doing hydrogen in a world of EVs? And he said, we're going to run out of resources by 2026. We're preparing for that. Really? And then he changed gears into something else. And I put it like dead center of the article. Cannot miss. And, and nobody seems to have caught it. And if a company as big as BMW is kind of hedging part of their bets on us running out of resources to make and manufacture and mine batteries... I think somebody should be paying attention, aside from me. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting um, comment on all this because when you look at when you look at it, there's a lot of assumptions being made about how quickly we can ramp up uh, the mining of of the necessary elements for these batteries. And you think if you're a big car company like BMW, you can't afford to no longer be able to make cars when all these um, all these sort of milestones are coming into these mm-hmm. government set milestones are coming into place. It's, uh, I, I don't know how it's going to happen. The technology moves really fast, and it's a really long ramp-up time on the back end for manufacturers to make cars. And it's not as easy as just pulling out a gas tank and replacing it with a, with a stack of batteries. You've got to rejig the entire you know, guts of the car. So I, I'm optimistic that this is going to happen. I think that deadline slash goalposts are going to be pushed back a little bit the closer we get to it. Because um, you can't go out and find every manufacturer billions of dollars because then, you know, that creates a whole other mess of itself. But we're on the right track, but it's the slow lane. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, we began with a pun, we can end with one too. And yes. before we go, though, I know that you're also a travel writer. You have a new site, a new website. Mm-hmm. Look at. Yeah, it's uh, moderntraveler.ca. Just launched it a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's about making travel approachable, attainable, and aspirational. Just if you have a love of travel, whether you're crossing the street or crossing the globe, my goal is to you know help people understand travel and educate them and share some great locations with them. And I've got a great team of writers and yeah, moderntraveler.ca with two L's because we'll we're in Canada. Indeed. We'll talk about that next time. Jay, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, this came as a surprise to a lot of people who've been watching this issue very closely for a very long time. And when it comes to news emerging from the Vatican, surprise is not usually a word one associates with it. Uh, Today, the Vatican formally repudiated something called the Doctrine of Discovery. Now, these are a theory backed by uh, 15th century papal decrees, essentially. So this goes back a very long time that legitimized colonial-era seizure of indigenous lands and to form the basis of some property law we still see today. I mean, and historians, please don't get mad with this description of it. But back in the day, and it was essentially, uh, you know, a late 15th century, you know, 1400s pope, who to allow Portugal and Spain to essentially carve up the world for their own, uh, their own riches uh, and spread Christianity, quote unquote, were kind of allowed to do whatever they want and take over any land that wasn't 
populated by Christians, so to speak. So it, um, you know, we, we live with the legacy of it today. Look at South America or Central America. It's still there. Um, so Vatican, the Vatican today uh, actually uh, repealed this or repudiated it. And now, why does it matter in 2023? Well, um, it goes back in many ways, much of what we are still here with today is was built on those decrees, you know, put out all those many centuries ago. And for a very long time, Indigenous peoples right around the world, including here in Canada, it was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations. It was brought up often before and during the papal visit to Canada last year, um, that they would like to see these eliminated because they've been, uh, you know, certainly disputed for a very long time. And they like to see uh, the Vatican, the Catholic Church, um, at least finally admit that these uh, were wrong. So they did that today, sort of, sort of. What they did say was that they did not adequately reflect the equal dignity and rights of Indigenous peoples, which is which is a good step for them. Uh, they also said that the documents had been manipulated by political purposes by colonial powers to justify immoral acts against Indigenous peoples. Um, yeah, I mean, in some senses, you know, the Catholic Church, the Vatican itself was, was you know, sort of worked hand in hand with these colonial powers for a very long time. Uh, but, you know, that's that's where they're, that's what they're saying today. So, you know, it, it, the statement itself still needs some parsing, but it was a big step and a surprising one at that. The Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops says it is grateful that the Vatican has rejected the doctrine of discovery. Um here is Donald Bolin. He's the Archbishop of Regina, says it shows that Pope Francis listened to Indigenous people when he visited Canada for his tour last year. Acknowledged that uh, during the period of colonization, Indigenous people suffered greatly, um, that their rights were trampled upon and their land was taken, uh, that the papal bulls were a part of that. Right. So... On the long road to reconciliation, this has been an important milestone was for the Vatican to finally look at the, this doctrine of discovery, these papal decrees or bulls as they're called, and admit that they were wrong. Uh, again, they've been asking this for a long time now, but it came as a bit of a surprise. So I was interested to know, first of all, you know, the reaction to it uh, within Indigenous communities in this country, as well as reaction to the wording of what the statement was and what it means going forward. To help us with that is Cody Grote. He's an assistant professor of history and Indigenous studies at Western University. Cody, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. A lot of times when we were talking about reconciliation ahead of the Pope's visit last year, this issue came up. And there wasn't a whole lot of optimism that this repudiation would come. And yet today we've seen something like it. Tell me a bit about your reaction to the announcement itself and what exactly has the Vatican said here? I think you contextualizing it within the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is really important for this conversation because it does come in some ways as a response to one of the calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So when the Pope was here and he apologized for the actions regarding the residential school system, but more importantly, when he was on the plane flying home and when he recognized the residential school system as an act of genocide, that really did impact conversations that were happening with Indigenous peoples who had historic relationships with the Catholic Church across the entire world. So that's really what I'm seeing again with this doctrine of discovery, this repudiation of this concept, because it might have been a concept that informed colonization in the Canadian context, and we'll discuss that later, I'm sure, but it also had a very significant impact in relation to colonization in the United States, and notably in Central and South America. It was really a concept embedded in the actions 
um, uh, Spanish colonialism, Portuguese colonialism, who had much closer ties to the Catholic Church. So this is not just something that's going to be shaping Indigenous affairs in Canada today, but globally. Yeah, I mean, if we we go back in time to the late uh, 1400s, this was essentially what was used by Spain and Portugal to justify with sort of, you know, in the name of spreading Christianity, quote unquote, was allowed them to justify the full on possession of lands in the new world, essentially. Correct. And again, we can compare it to the Pope's visit, because when the Pope apologized for the residential school system, the wording that he used was very careful. He didn't necessarily apologize for the actions of the Catholic Church in regards to the residential school system, but employees of the Catholic Church who were acting on behalf of the Catholic Church. And we see that similarly in the apology that was made today regarding the doctrine of discovery. The apology states that the doctrine of discovery wasn't articulated by the Catholic Church. It was influenced by two papal bulls, two documents that were issued by the Vatican. And the concept of the doctrine of discovery was informed by these documents, which were issued by the Catholic Church, but it was never explicitly issued by them. And it's, again, similarly apologizing for their involvement, but trying to shift the blame away from them directly. But as you said, how, how this was actualized is the whole idea behind this doctrine of discovery was that It was justifiable to colonize or claim or occupy a land if it wasn't governed by a Christian monarch. So what it argued is that if a nation was not governed by a a Christian monarch, then their sovereignty, their right over that territory was not legitimized. So we saw that in Central and South America, the Spanish and the Portuguese acted upon that. But that principle also became inherent within how the English and how the French viewed Indigenous sovereignty in North America, and we saw it again in Australia and New Zealand similarly. Yeah, and then it was later, uh, I gather, uh, if we fast forward a couple of hundred years by the early 1800s, it comes into use again when when the American Supreme Court begins to look at how who land belongs to, quote, you know, in, in, in at least legally. Yeah, we saw it embedded in a lot of different legal systems. And again, a lot of my research is tied to Canada, but we even see how the British Crown granted the Hudson's Bay Company sovereign authority over a large tract of North America, territory of several indigenous nations, for their commercial activities. The original Hudson's Bay Company charter, which provided the foundation for the company as we know it today, actually transfers sovereignty over a large tract of land to this corporate enterprise for economic purposes. And again, from there, the Hudson's Bay Company sold this large tract of land to the government of Canada after Confederation. And that's how we have the northern part of the province of Ontario. That's how we have Manitoba, Saskatchewan, was again, all of these shifting allocations of sovereignty. And the whole basis of that that we can look at at the very beginning is the fact that Indigenous sovereignty was not deemed as legitimate. Later, we had a document issue called the Royal Proclamation that was issued by the British Crown. And that stated that The British and then later the government of Canada had to sign and negotiate treaties with Indigenous nations if they were going to occupy these lands. That's why we have this treaty relationship, which America does not have. But again, all of these treaties are based on this same inherent principle that Indigenous sovereignty is lesser than or not to the same extent than Christian nations. 
yeah, hundreds of millions of us walk on the legacy of of this of this very idea. Uh, what kind of impact? I mean, we saw the wording of it. May you know the idea that perhaps the, the the Vatican isn't taking blame for this, but taking accepting responsibility for how it was interpreted. Uh, but what impact will it have? Because again, it's one of those issues that I don't think a lot of Canadians pay a lot of attention to. But every time we were talking to folks about the the visit of the, the Pope's upcoming visit, and while the Pope was in Canada, when we talked about reconciliation. The doctrine of discovery came up when speaking with Indigenous peoples all the time. So is this a big day? I personally think it's not going to have a direct impact on the lives of Indigenous peoples. And I also don't think it's going to shape our legal systems. As I've been saying to others, the Catholic Church does not have sovereign rights over lands in Canada. The Catholic Church does not inform how we interpret our legal standings in regards to the Canadian nation state and Indigenous nations and territoriality and sovereignty. But that being said, we can recognize that this entire concept of colonialism in Canada, this entire occupancy of these lands, these Indigenous nation states by a colonial government was based on this very principle. So now what we're seeing is that this principle and the organization, the body, the Vatican, which legitimized it, they're they're repudiating it. They're saying that this is no longer justifiable. We can't abide by these beliefs anymore. So again, I don't necessarily think that we're going to see direct changes as a result of this. But what this does is this upholds our sovereign beliefs as Indigenous peoples that our nation states have always been legitimate. They continue to be legitimate. Our national territories, our governance systems, our sovereignty over these lands are ours, and they still exist to this day. Cody Grote is with us, Assistant Professor of History and Indigenous Studies at Western University. We're talking about the Vatican announcing today a repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. In some ways, the foundation laid by the Catholic Church and then uh, taken up by countries such as empires, such as uh, Portugal and Spain, to conquer lands, Indigenous lands around the world and lay claim to them. And it seeped through history into Supreme Court decisions, as Cody was mentioning, all the way up to the Hudson Bay Company and different uh, aspects of Canada. It very much is part of the legacy that we walk on. in this country, so many of us do. In terms of reconciliation, I mean, this was the papal visit was, a, and you mentioned it off the top, and, and the plane ride home, uh, recognizing the residential schools as a genocide. This now, the repudiation, of course, the current Pope, Francis, is a South American. I think he's probably much more alive to these issues than some of his, his predecessors. So where do we where do we stand now? Is this is are these the things that you wanted to see in terms of goodwill? Where do we go from here? It's interesting that you use the term goodwill because I personally don't perceive this to be a proactive move that was made by the Vatican, that was made by the Pope. I think in many ways they were forced to do this. The calls to action of the TRC have been issued since 2015, so it's been eight years. And again, I think we've seen sustained pressure from Indigenous peoples around the world, both before and after the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, who have repeatedly said, This principle is something that has tried to critique and minimize and reduce our sovereignty for hundreds of years, and we will not stop until you formally repudiate these claims. And I think even the the repudiation made by the Pope, uh, again, they try to minimize the impact that this might have had in regards to the Catholic Church actually being involved in this concept. But we see here, we see Indigenous peoples who have been advocating for centuries in some cases that these concepts are inherently flawed. So again, I don't think this is a sign of goodwill. I don't think this is necessarily a sign of reconciliation in regards to the Pope. I think that this is them realizing that the sustained pressure by Indigenous peoples has finally made it get to a point where they've had to do this. 
Yeah, I was uh, struck by a comment that was made by Harry LaForme, who said the story of the doctrine is the story of how you can obtain other people's land by magic, right? And I guess there's a recognition now of, of the injustice of that to some extent. You did mention it earlier, though, you think the immediate impact won't be much beyond the symbolic victory of having them reduced, right? Correct. And again, you can look at other jurisdictions, and they have some interesting case studies. So in Australia, there was something called the Mabo decision. And the Mabo decision repudiated this concept that was called terra nullius. Uh, I'm not good with my Latin, but essentially means empty territory or empty right. earth. And it was, again, based on these very similar concepts where there was not these Christian nations as we perceive them, or there's not these sovereign entities as we perceive them uh, in a European or in a Western context, which justified these acts of colonization. That's mentioned in the uh, final report of the TRC, as it's called to repudiate the doctrine of discovery and the concept of terra nullius. And what's interesting to me is there's also a call to action that calls on federal governments, provincial governments, and municipal governments to repudiate these concepts, the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius. It's interesting, because, again, because you're right, it seeps through absolutely everything. And here is the the sort of the originator. I mean, it, it, it originated, but here is sort of the originator of this repudiating it. And it feels like it could have a, a knock-on effect through many places. It's just unclear how that might unfold. I think it'll definitely be a long-term scenario. And again, oftentimes when we're in these legal debates and when they're as large as sovereignty and land claims and le- and uh, land disputes, they do interpret these documents as justifications either for or against certain arguments that are made by the Crown or by Indigenous stakeholders. So again, we're going to start to see how this concept is being repudiated by those who initiated it. And again, that adds in some ways more ammunition to the discussion, in my opinion, as a historian. I guess I'll ask you the question I started off with again. Were you surprised? Were you surprised when you saw the news today? I think I was surprised at how unexpectedly sudden it was. I Mm, think we knew that the apology was coming for the residential school system. There was a buildup. There was a pre-visit by Indigenous uh, survivors of the residential school system to the Vatican. There was almost a pre-apology made by the Pope, which was the precursor to the apology here on Canadian soil, as called for by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I tend to follow these issues fairly closely. And I honestly don't understand the context for why this was announced today, it came as quite a surprise for me. But I think if we look at the trajectory of where these conversations have been going, I think it would have been very hard for the Vatican and for the Pope to not act upon this in the coming days, weeks, months, or years. But again, I think the actual timing itself was was quite surprising for me. And you mentioned it as well, that you think uh, the Canadian experience for the Pope has played a big role in this. I mean, this impacts Indigenous peoples right around the world, as you mentioned, uh, from South America to Central America to Australia, I mean, in many, many places. But Canada has played a big role in driving this conversation to some extent. I think it has. And again, I don't think we can minimize the role that the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had on this and uh, the identification of unmarked graves that exist at residential school sites. And Again, both my grandparents were survivors of the residential school system. They attended the Mohawk Institute Residential School. They passed away in the 1980s, but they didn't talk about their residential school experiences in their lifetime. And again, part of that was this embedded trauma, this belief that this is not something we can discuss or disclose. And we've slowly seen those barriers, those barricades breaking down over the past few years. And even once the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out in 2015, 
there was some conversation, but it still didn't kickstart the way it has been in recent years. There's an entire report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about unmarked graves and missing and murdered students. And the fact that that entire report wasn't necessarily discussed uh, in 2015 until we start identifying these unmarked grave sites at former residential schools. So again, I think it's been a slow build, but it's all it can all be tied in some ways to this milestone report that is, again, nearing 10 years old now. That's right. Uh, Cody, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Thank you, Ben. I, I like to read. I've always read. I was, you know, I read a lot as a, as a kid. And uh, often it's my mom who will occasionally we talk about books and she'll send me things that she thinks I'll like. And uh, she was a longtime science journalism professor in Ottawa. And she sent me this book uh, many years ago by uh, a gentleman named Vincent Lamb, who's a doctor called Bloodletting and Other Miracle Cures that wound up winning the Giller Prize uh, back in 2006, I believe. She sent me this book many, many years ago, and she highly recommended it. I read it. I really liked it. And I've always kind of followed uh, Vincent Lamb's career as, as a writer ever since. And he uh, now has five books out. He has a new one out uh, recently called On the Ravine. Uh, and his story is really interesting. The, the first book was about his, it was fictional. So was the latest one. There were some nonfiction books in between. And it really followed, it was short stories, and it sort of followed life in the ER as written by a, by a doctor who knew all about it. Um, and he resurrects those characters for this latest book. And it's, it's 10 years later, or, or la even later than that. They've moved on, they've changed careers, um, much like Dr. Lamb has. And it is about addiction. It is about addiction and the opioid crisis. Now, Dr. Lamb has moved from being an emergency room physician to being an addictions medicine physician in that time as well. So in some ways, it's very much seen through his personal experiences. A reminder, though, of why this matters. Um, we found out recently that more than 5,300 Canadians had died from accidental opioid-related overdoses over a nine-month period last year. That's according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. 80% of all accidental, accidental opioid deaths in the country from January to September 2022 occurred in Ontario, BC, and Alberta. So really, three provinces, uh, the majority of them, 87%. Uh, in all, 5,360 Canadians have died, uh, died between January and September of 2022 as a result of an overdose. So this continues to be, here we are, seven years after British Columbia at least declared a public health emergency, and we're still dealing with huge numbers of overdose deaths all the time. 81% of those deaths occurred uh, that it involved fentanyl, and 78% were, were opioids that were non-pharmaceutical, so essentially street drugs. Again, in that report, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada says it continues to work with federal, provincial, and territorial partners to better understand the harms and substances and to better respond to the public crisis. So here we are, uh, all these years later, still trying to figure out answers to what is what is clearly a remarkably complex and intricate problem um, that involves so many layers of what society uh, is and has become. Uh, there are no quick fixes here. And the complexity of, complexities of addiction and how to treat it are also, of course, the subject of Dr. Vincent Lamb's latest book. Again, he uses both his long experience as an ER physician and for the past decade in addictions medicine. Uh, on the Ravine, it's called. It may be fiction, but it tackles, tackles the very real issues that are the foundation of Canada's public health opioid crisis. It's told through the interweaving stories of those two doctors that I mentioned that feature in that first book back from 2006, Bloodletting 
and other cures. Uh, Chen and Fitzgerald. Um, and Claire is the main character. She is a violinist who becomes addicted to painkillers after a shoulder injury uh, when she's quite young that prevents her from being able to play at the level she wants to play at to succeed. She descends into street drugs, including fentanyl. And then the fictional Dr. Chen, much like the real Dr. Lam, also operates an addiction clinic in Toronto. Um, so that's where this all sort of begins to come together. And as we grapple with the opioid crisis in this country and all the factors that contribute to it, and as politicians fight over offering up simple solutions or blaming each other, now I know that's politics, right? That's just the way politics work. But every time I hear any politician sort of say, this way is awful, this way will work, I always think it can't be true. There is no one answer to how, to, how this works. There is no such thing as all safe supply is bad, although a lot of safe supply isn't great. There's no such thing as only treatment works because it all depends, right? So this book, even though it's fiction, takes 400 pages to wind its way through all these different angles and of this intricate problem, showing there are no quick fixes, but there is optimism for the future. Dr. Vincent Lamb, addictions medicine physician, medical director of the Coderix Medical Clinic in Toronto, and Giller Prize winning author, including with his new book, On the Ravine, is out now, and he joins me now. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. It's incredible to look at, at, at your history, because in some ways this book encapsulates so much of the history of opioids as we know them now within the system. And you saw it from the very get-go as an emergency room physician and then have followed it kind of through the years into your new work. Tell me about the time in emergency in, in ER, in the ER, and where you saw the beginnings of what, I mean, and it's brought out in your book through the character, Claire, as well, how so many of these addictions began with with the way we treated simple injuries and painkillers, for instance. Yeah. So I worked in the emergency department for 13 years, loved my career as an emergency physician. And one of the amazing things about that career is the immense variety. And so it's a wonderful, invigorating practice. One of the things about that is that it's also kind of fragmented, right? Every time it's a new moment in someone's story, trying to help them the best as you can in that particular moment. I think looking back now, it strikes me that that's the way we approach a lot of things in our healthcare system, right? We're trying to put out fires that are flaring up right now. And obviously that's a really important thing to do. But one of the challenges is that if that's the only thing that we're looking at, we're only looking at the problem and the crisis at the moment, then it's hard for us to see the bigger picture. And certainly the issues around opioids are bigger picture issues, right? Opioids are really, really good at doing things in the short term that help people like relieving pain if they've broken a bone, for instance. And they're actually really not very good at things like chronic pain when I was an emergency doctor, there was a different culture around opioids. So that's something that I learned from as well. We were in the period during which we thought, well, you know what, if you prescribe opioids for, quote, the right reason, meaning for pain and not to get high or have fun, then it'll be okay. And it turns out that's not the case. It turns out that even when we do prescribe opioids for reasons that we think are the right reasons, a percentage of people will run into trouble with those opioids and have problems down the line, dependence, addiction. When I look back at my career in emergency medicine and kind of dovetail that into my career in addiction medicine, a lot of the lessons are about perspective and how we position ourselves as a society and as a healthcare system. Yeah, you, you've compared it 
to an elephant, right? Uh, to 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 a group of blind people in an elephant, and depending what part of the elephant you touch, you come away with a different perspective and different ideas about what might work if there's a problem, and that's part and parcel of the issue we've bumped into now is is trying to figure out what exactly the issue is when in fact the issue is the whole elephant. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, every time we're we're thinking about one part of the elephant, whether it's the trunk or the ears or the tail. You know, if we're going to call something a toxic drug crisis or an opioid crisis, give it different names or say, you know, overdoses are the main problem or trauma is the main problem. Guess what? They're all part of the elephant. And so we have to be able to look at the whole elephant. So this is actually where I think fiction is incredibly important in terms of being able to understand the dynamics of a problem at a human level. The story of someone who... Uh, experiences opioids and whose life has been affected by opioids is a story. And it's a story that plays out over a long period of time, typically. It changes what issues they have to confront. And so for us to really think about the issue of opioids as a society, I think it really helps us to be able to think in terms of these big picture stories of human beings trying to make their way in the world. Fiction gives us the ability to enter into the lives of people over a long period of time and to empathize with them, to think about where things go over a long period of time, how the story unfolds. And so even though this is a work of fiction, it's very much intended to help honor the kinds of stories which people experience when their lives are affected by opioids. Yeah, and and one of the central characters. I mean, there are, there are several. So there are a few central characters, but the one who's working their way through an opioid addiction seems to amalgamate so many of what we know to be those who've suffered in that circumstance. As someone who suffered an injury, was in a situation where they needed to to soldier on, so to speak, and then all of a sudden, many other issues come in, and the opioids begin to take over the life of someone who was, in many ways, sort of destined for success. Claire, in your book. That's right. Claire is a violinist. She's talented. Her greatest desire is to make beautiful music and to share that with the world. That's the kind of thing which I think we all feel. We all have a desire to leave some piece of beauty in the world. And she meets Chen, one of the doctors in this book. And Chen's main desire is to try to help others, to try to assist people where he can, to use his knowledge, his expertise to make other people's lives better when he can. And that's something that I think we can all empathize with as well. And we all have as part of our lives. To see how these come together in this story, to me, is interesting because we would think, oh, okay, well, these are great starting points, you know? Well, these are really good people trying to do good things and life is complicated. When you made the move, what prompted you to make that move from from emergency room medicine to running an addictions clinic? Because it sort of dovetails with so much that's happened much more broadly around opioid addiction over the past 25 years. Well, I loved my career in emergency medicine. It was a fantastic way to start my medical career. I loved the variety, the pace, the urgency. One of the things that was more difficult for me was that it was also fragmented. Mm -hmm. Emergency medicine is something where you jump in and you do the most important thing that you can do right now for the patient in front of you. That was great, but it also meant I was jumping into stories and then walking away and not knowing what happened next to the patient. And so after doing it for 13 years, I really wanted to be able to interact with patients in a way that was more long-term. And it's what we call in medicine, continuity of care. 
the idea that you take care of someone now and next week, the next month, the next year, if they need you. And in doing that, you can give them a different kind of care, a kind of care that knows their story. And that's the kind of care that I wanted to be involved in. And I still wanted to be doing something that felt urgent, something that allowed me to really feel like I was making an important contribution right now. And so addiction medicine allowed me to do those things. When we look at uh, Dr. Chen, who who also runs an addictions clinic within the book, and Claire, who is sort of the central patient in this book, I know these are sort of amalgamated characters of many things you've probably seen. But when you look at the discourse out there around opioid addiction, it strikes me that Claire is one of those representations that, you know, sometimes people tend to think of opioid addiction as something that happens to others, or perhaps they've fallen into something and they should find their way out of it by themselves. But through Claire's story, the violinist who hurts herself and then becomes addicted to opioids after suffering an injury that prevents her from being able to play without them. You see a lot of a lot of different people in that character. A lot of different stories come together in that one person. And it struck me that that is the story of opioid addiction in this country. It's a very complicated one that impacts people from all walks of life. Oh, absolutely. It's a problem which is incredibly important in all walks of life. So there were a couple of things that were really important to me in creating the character of Claire. It really had to be someone who was specifically not in any way possibly confused with one of my patients. So I have lots of really talented and wonderful people as patients, some of whom are artists. So one of the reasons I chose a career in classical music and later modern music, a career as a violinist for Claire, is actually specifically because I don't have any violinists as patients. And then I think the thing that you said is also incredibly important because If we don't know someone in our lives who is affected by a substance use disorder, I think it's possible sometimes that we fall into this mistaken stereotype that substance use disorders just affect, for instance, people who don't have homes or people who are in some way very different from ourselves. And that's simply not true. I have many patients, I'm absolutely certain, the neighbors and the co-workers and the friends of your listeners and, you know, people who who may or may not choose to share this aspect of their lives with others. But it's absolutely an issue which is in the lives of people who are employed, people who are living their lives with families, people who are in society, just as we all are in society. And so I think it was really important for me that Claire be a character who represents this broad sweep of the ways in which uh, substance use disorders and opioid use disorders affect people in this country. Yeah, and part of that, I suspect, is to try to get people to understand the complexities of the situation that, that you know, because obviously in politics, we hear a lot of quick fix ideas. I mean, that's the nature of politics. But in reading your book, one is always reminded of just how many layers there are to addiction and how often solving problems of addiction, if that's the ultimate goal here, uh, demand a lot more than a quick fix. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the realm of politics, for better or for worse these days, seems seems to be always to reduce the message to a tweet. I think where uh, novels like On the Ravine can contribute to this discussion is that they can help to deepen and broaden the discussion. If someone feels like they really understood this issue before and knows all the answers uh, and clearly understands what needs to be done, I hope that On the Ravine will challenge that and challenge it in a way that that doesn't necessarily cause people to 
to be more polarized and more divided, which also we see too much of, I think, now in modern politics, but which allows people to understand other human dimensions of this problem through the lens of fiction, through the lens of what characters go through. And that's that's really one of my big hopes for On the Ravine. I'm not hoping that it's going to give anyone any magic solution answers, because as much as I wish that there were magic solution answers, I don't think there are. I think we need to figure out complex human-oriented responses. But what I do hope is that it helps people ask better questions. And so if people can read On the Ravine and questions that question their own assumptions, ask better questions, then I'll feel it's been a worthwhile book to have out in the world. Dr. Lamb, when you look at some of the things that you explore in your book, because there's there's the addiction side to it, and then there's sort of the solution side to it. It, it is a complicated, I mean, as you point out, science shifts, science learns from its own mistakes and its own successes. And when you look at how we should be tackling this issue, you get the sense that people who want quick fixes are going to be disappointed because the answer lies out there in some combination of a bunch of things that we don't fully understand yet. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we have to always recognize is that the things we do may have both upsides and downsides. Too often, I think when we ourselves are enamored with one particular approach, we can uh, make the mistake of focusing only on things that we believe to be benefits and kind of have um, a bit of a blind eye towards the downsides. And so I think that's something which, which the characters in On the Ravine grapple with, certainly. So there's a real tension between two medical approaches. There are two doctors whom some readers will have met in Bloodletting and Miraculous Cures, Chen and Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. And they're both passionate doctors. They both want the best for their patients. And they both have really different approaches. So Chen is someone who wants very much to adhere to science. He wants things to be methodologically sound, to have the power of data and information behind him. And Fitzgerald is much more intuitive. He uh, wants to respond to the demand of the moment and just do what he thinks seems best. And so they have very different uh, approaches and vantage points, and yet they're good friends. When you look at potential, and, and you explore them in the book as well, but when you look at, and you certainly point out, the, the in, in fiction, you point out real gaps in, in our healthcare system in this country, and part of the problem uh, that we're seeing manifest itself with uh, with addictions issues is is a reflection of those gaps. From your frontline position as an, as an addictions medicine physician, where are the gaps? Because you point out very clearly that many Canadians don't have GPs, which is an issue. Our ability to treat pain uh, is certainly needs to evolve because part of the problem is, is that's fragmented. Uh, where should we begin? The absolutely most important place that we need to begin is by making sure that every Canadian has access to primary care meaning a family physician or a nurse practitioner who is their, their place where they know that they can go if they have a problem as the first stop to both assist them with that problem and to help coordinate care. So that is absolutely the number one thing we need to be doing in the healthcare system. The second thing we need to be doing is we need to be integrating our information systems. We have a country which is full of a mishmash of disparate information systems that don't talk to one another. There's room for lots of things to fall through those gaps, and it also creates lots of inefficiency. And so we need an integrated information system. 
I think the third thing that we really need to do, and maybe in saying this, I'll wear both the hats of the doctor and the writer, is that we have to understand that people's health is always ultimately about people's stories. It's about what they're experiencing. I think we make a mistake when we think, okay, well, healthcare is about providing services in the same way that we're providing, say, a hamburger or fixing a a car, car, right? Yeah. 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 It's not really about providing itemized little bits of this and that. Healthcare is about having systems that care for people over a long time. So over the course of their story. And so we really need to understand that, embed that into the way that we structure healthcare. From your position as both writer and, and physician who deals with, with people suffering through addiction issues, what are the misconceptions out there? Or what are some of the problems that you think are in the way of those kinds of solutions right now? Because it, it's, I sense in reading the book that woven within it is your own personal views of some of the gaps that exist and some of the prejudices that are out there. Well, I think the number one thing, which is a barrier to us getting our hands around addiction and really being compassionate towards people who are experiencing substance use disorders is this belief that people who have a a substance use disorder are somehow different. And that's simply not true. We really need to understand the commonalities. So some of those, for instance, there's always this tension between the desires that we have and are trying to move towards, but we can never quite satisfy. And all of us have that in our own way. And then always, for all of us, there's this tension between the way that we want to feel and the actions we're actually able to take in the world. Right? We want to feel nice. We want to feel good. We can't always control that. We have a lot of control over the physical actions that we can take, the choices we make, the decisions we make. But sometimes we're not sure how that's going to affect how we feel. So all of these forces are 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 part of our everyday reality, and they're also part of the everyday reality of people who are experiencing a substance use disorder. Some of the other things which I think are are really basic and uh, common to every human being, all of us want to avoid anxiety, avoid pain, and we want to experience pleasure. And so we sometimes make choices which move us towards that, and sometimes those choices work well in the short term, but maybe don't work so well in the long term. All of us experience that. So I think we really have to reconceptualize what these driving forces are. For sure, there are structural forces which are incredibly important. There are the forces of trauma and socioeconomic disadvantage and colonialism and racialization and marginalization and poverty, which very drastically slant the odds for each of us, depending on how those forces affect us uh, in terms of whether we're going to experience a mental health issue or a substance use disorder. But the fundamental forces which are underlying the lives and the stories of all of us, whether or not we're having a substance use disorder, are very human and are very normal. And I think we really have to understand that. It feels uh, as if the public discourse, we've seen certainly in Toronto of late, there's been another uh, random attack in Toronto that's getting a lot of publicity. There's been a lot of concern about random violence. It all kind of wraps itself into discussions we've had about mental health and addiction and so forth. I I get the sense, though, that that their patience is running thin for solutions. And and that feels uh, like it could be both a motivator and detrimental all at once. Uh, How do you see it? 
Well, I think it would be really tragic if people think one of two things, right? I think it'd be really tragic if people think that just because there's a problem which hasn't been fixed in the past six months or six minutes, that it can't be fixed. And I think it would be really tragic if people think that people who are experiencing these issues are somehow other and who are, you know, experiencing either mental health issues or substance use issues are in some other category of society, which doesn't overlap with our own. That's simply not true. So the two truths, I think, to, to counter those things, which would be really unfortunate mistruths. The first is that just as these problems are problems which play out over years, the responses also need to be responses which support people over years and over decades. We have to understand what some of the predisposing risk factors are to mental health issues and substance use disorders and figure out how we can address those in a structural way. And that means addressing them in terms of early childhood support, in terms of really encouraging, nurturing home, as well as educational environments where children can flourish and be supported. It means really thinking about our mental health care system writ large, because what we know is that often substance use disorders are a second problem. They're the problem that comes after a mental health problem wasn't addressed. And right now we have a terrible lack of access to mental health care. So we really need to think very carefully about how we can bolster the mental health care system and make sure that people have access to mental health care in conjunction with access to primary care. And we need to think about our support systems for Canadians who may fall on tough times. And that means we need to, to really think about our disability support systems, our workplace leave systems. We need to be able to support workers who are injured and who may have a painful injury so that they can get appropriate care as well as financial support while they're recovering from injuries and returning to work. So these are all systems that need to work together in order to support Canadians. And then the second thing, you know, this misconception that, that it's, you know, quote, someone else this happens to. That's absolutely not the case. I think one of the most common things my patients tell me when they come and see me and they're seeking help for a substance use disorder is they say, Dr. Lamb, I just want my life back. And that's because they were living a life and they want to get back to their life. You know, if if we who are fortunate enough to not currently be experiencing a mental health issue or a substance use disorder somehow think, well, you know what, we're sick of this, we're impatient, we don't want to deal with it because, quote, it's those people's fault, unquote. We're ignoring the fact that these are human issues that can easily affect any of us, anyone in our family, and we really need to create systems that support anyone who encounters one of these issues. Your book ends on a hopeful, it's not a happy ending, but it is a hopeful ending. I know ending things or wrapping something up like that story would be, would have been difficult, but you chose a tone to end and it was, it was hopeful without being what we would call a, a happy ending. And that was, and clearly you did that for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the tone that I leave work with if it's been a good day. I never leave the clinic thinking, oh gosh, this is wonderful. I've just cured everyone and everything is perfect. No, absolutely not. I typically leave with a mix of emotions. I typically leave work thinking about my patients, worrying about some, 
for the ones who have been doing well, who have been moving in the direction that they want their lives to be going, I feel a sense of hope. And I do feel also a sense of concern and trepidation, uh, because one never knows what the future brings. At any moment, our life is long, and we may think it's going along just fine. And there could be a fork in the road, there could be something unexpected around the corner. And I think we also need the kind of humility that allows us to understand that. That's the reason I chose to end on the ravine there. That's very much a feeling which I know well from my work and is a feeling which I think is important for all of us to recognize. Vincent Lamb, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.